0: Okay, thanks Kelly. Um, Good morning, everyone. My name is Sarah Martin-Torres and I am the state liaison um, and a Department of Justice accredited representative with the Pennsylvania Immigration Resource Center or PERC. And I am co-presenting this morning with our managing attorney for community programs, Whitney Phelps. Um, If you're not familiar with PERC, um, we are an immigration legal service provider, nonprofit, Um, We have been around for, I think we are celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. Um, So we have, our main office is based in York. Um, We also have satellite offices in Allentown and Pittsburgh. And we have um, essentially two program areas. Um, The first is our Detained program, which provides um, legal orientation and um, some direct representation to folks who are detained at the york county prison and the berks family um, residential uh, facility Um, and we also have our community programs which is obviously the program that whitney and i work in um, which is includes our naturalization project um, and also the immigrant survivors project which may be um, the project that you are most familiar with Um, isp has been around for a little over 10 years. And what we do is provide free immigration legal services to survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault and human trafficking. Um, And our model of service delivery is really that we partner really closely with domestic violence and sexual assault programs. Um, So that's generally where we get a lot of our referrals. and in, when we're not you know, living through a global pandemic, we also generally provide our services on site at those domestic violence and sexual assault programs um, to hopefully make our services more accessible um, to the survivors that we are working with. Um, and part of that um, model is that we also coordinate the Immigrant Survivors Advocate Network, which we launched in 2018. Um, and what ESAN is, it's basically a group of, right now I think we have 37 um, domestic violence and sexual assault programs that are participating. And it's really, ESON has two goals. One is to make immigration legal services available throughout the state. Um, and really we're, we are focused on providing free, high-quality, survivor-focused immigration legal services Um, And then secondly, we want to support domestic violence and sexual assault programs in serving immigrant and limited English proficient survivors. Um, So to do that, we offer, of course, our free immigration legal services. Um, We also offer document translation and telephonic interpretation, video interpretation, um, training and resources. Um, And this is funded through a VOCA grant. So uh, all of those services are, and tools are available to our members at no cost. Um, And even though the the network is limited to domestic violence and sexual assault programs, um, there are, we do have a resource bank that I I dropped a link in the the chat. Um, And anyone is welcome to access that. And you'll find on there, a lot of um, like PCCD documents that have been translated. for example, documents that a lot of us are using, like the VOCA ESQ, um, the the Bill of Rights. um, We just added some translations of the um, Crime Victims booklet that also includes the um, BCAP short form. Um, So those will be there in in multiple languages, um, as well as some really nice like visual safety plans, a lot of language access, Materials, so do feel free to check those out, and you know, help yourself to anything that um, will be useful in, in helping you to serve immigrant survivors. So that is perk and who we are. Um, what we hope to cover today in the next ninety minutes is um, we want to discuss. Um, the dynamics of domestic violence and sexual assault and how those can be experienced a little bit differently by immigrant survivors, as well as some of the common barriers to help seeking that immigrant survivors often um, experience. And then we are going to go through um, some of the immigration options that survivors have available to them um, and talk through some of the actual forms of relief. Um, So we will be monitoring the chat if at any time you have questions or comments, please do feel free to um, comment in the chat and and we'll make sure to address those. Um, Or feel free to unmute um, and jump in. That's totally fine with us as well. So um, to dive into the first portion about the dynamics of domestic violence um, and how someone's immigration status can be used as a tool of abuse, we're going to walk through a case example. Um, Obviously, all immigrant survivors are different. People's experiences are unique. Um, it's not that all immigrant survivors are gonna experience these things that we are talking about today, but we we picked this example because it demonstrates a lot of the themes that come up in um, the work that we do with immigrant survivors. So it's just helpful to keep these in mind, obviously knowing that everyone's experience is different. Um, so, What I want you to listen for in this first section is how um, Asha's immigration status is used as a tool of abuse and if you wouldn't mind um, as we're going as I'm reading through you can actually just drop in the chat anything that you hear um, you know the ways that uh, her immigration status plays into the abuse. So this is Asha she was born in Lahore Pakistan She was the third of five children and her father um, unfortunately passed away when she was just 12 years old. She attended school until the sixth grade and then worked in the home with her mother. When she was 19, her uncle came to her mother and her brother and said that he knew of a good man for Asha to marry. Asha's uncle and brother met with her future husband and his family uh, a few times and decided that they were a good match. Asha spoke to her her future husband by phone Uh, a few times and learned that he was a U.S. citizen and that she would be coming to the United States to live with him and his family in Pennsylvania. She entered the United States several months later on a fiancé visa. She felt nervous um, to leave her home and her family, to live in a country that she'd never been to before, but her friends and family assured her that she would be fine and that she would soon grow to love her husband. Um, They were married two months after she arrived, but her husband never filed for her permanent residency and her fiance visa expired after 90 days, leaving her without legal immigration status. Shortly after she arrived, Asha's husband took her wedding jewelry, passport, birth certificate, and locked them in a desk drawer. He constantly made threats to divorce her and to have her deported. She couldn't leave the house without his permission and she really never tried to because her husband was frequently telling her that if she did leave the house that she would be arrested by the police for being here um, without legal status. She didn't speak any English and her husband didn't allow her to take English classes telling her, you don't need to speak English to stay at home cooking and cleaning. She had no access to money and could only call her family when her husband allowed her to. And then he listened uh, to every call to be sure she didn't tell her family members what was happening. So I see some great things coming through the chat. Um, someone's talking about isolation, which is absolutely the case in, in Asha's experience. So he did a couple of things to isolate her, right? He, she was physically isolated. She was you know, in that home in Pennsylvania. Um, she didn't know anyone. She never left. Um, she wasn't able to build any, communi- any um, connections in the community. He also isolated her by not letting her learn the language um, so she didn't speak any English and he didn't allow her to learn it and then he also controlled her contact with her family back home um, limiting the amount of time that she could uh, you know limiting her ability to uh, make contact with them and then listening to the conversations so she couldn't talk freely um let's see what else we have here a huge one right so he didn't assist her in um preventing her immigration status from expiring. Yeah, so he'd never filed for her permanent residency. Um, And we see this a lot um, in in these type of mixed status relationships where um, the US citizen or the legal permanent resident spouse just completely fails to file um, for the person or they might lie about their ability to file. Um, They might hold it over the survivor's head saying, no, if you do XYZ, I Y, Z, I won't file your application, or if the application's already been filed, if you call the police or if you leave, um, I'll withdraw this application, I'll sabotage the interview. Um, there's a lot of ways that um, US citizen or, or legal permanent resident spouses can use our immigration system as a tool of abuse. Um, let me just check through the chat and see if we have anything else. Um, Another big one that came up in Asha's story in the beginning, you'll remember that he took her wedding jewelry, her passport um, and her birth certificate and locked it in a desk drawer. And this is something that we see really frequently um, with immigrant survivors is the withholding or um, destroying someone's identity documents. And this is a big deal because it's really difficult sometimes, Um, it can be really time consuming, it can be really costly to try to replace those documents Um, and also folks need those documents for if they are going to present an immigration application and just generally they may not be eligible for um, you know like a Pennsylvania um, ID or license and so these are really their only form of ID and it's really important for us as advocates to know about this because we can work it into our safety planning, right? Um, So if you're working with an immigrant survivor, you might want to talk through with them, where are they keeping their documents? Can they at least get copies and keep those in a safe um, place, like in your office, or keeping their identity documents with a trusted friend or family member? It can save somebody so much time and aggravation down the road if they're able to keep their identity documents safe. Um, So we talked about failing to file applications. Um, I don't know if it came up, uh, necessarily in, in Asha's story so far, um, but certainly threats of deportation using that um, as a means to control a survivor is really common, threatening to call um, and have them or have somebody deported, or like I said, withdrawal applications. Um, you know, I'm realizing now it doesn't come up specifically in this hypo, but um, in Asha's case, there was also um a lot of abuse from the in-laws in this case. And it's just something to be aware of just to assess what the living situation is and what all of the relationships are um, and how the survivor is being treated. In Ashley's case, I remember this person being, uh, the mother-in-law being super controlling and really involved in the relationship and just um, really monitoring things like monitoring how much food she ate, how much, How much toilet paper she used, like very, very controlling, um, and also very controlling when it came to um, having grandchildren or wanting grandchildren. Um, We also heard in Asha's case her husband lying about the police, you know, saying if you go outside, you know, you're going to be arrested because you're here illegally. Um, And we also often hear about abusers that lie about the survivor's ability to access services. Um, so um, you want to be aware of that a lot of times the for the immigrant survivor, um, they may really be relying on their spouse as their source of information um, because, you know, this person might be from here or they've been here longer, they speak the language, um, so they might be getting a lot of misinformation um, from the abuser that we as advocates have to um, counteract. Um, Another way that um, immigration status could be used as a tool of abuse is really making threats um, against the family in the home country, something that we unfortunately see a lot of. And you can imagine how a survivor can feel really powerless and really worried for their family when they may not have the ability to to protect them and and, um, are really fearful about threats that the abuser is making. And then lastly, um, we know that U.S. born victims um, frequently also suffer financial abuse, and that's also true for immigrant survivors. Um, and it can be even more um, difficult. You heard in Asha's story, the, the basically the the money she had was really just tied up in her in her wedding jewelry that she brought along, and he locked that up right away. She didn't have any access to money at all. Um, she didn't have access to his. Um, his bank accounts. She didn't have work authorization, so she didn't have any way to make her own money. If she, even if she were to be allowed, um, and she also didn't have access to many public benefits. So um, financial abuse is a big um, big piece of this. So, oops, I'm going to um, move on to the second part of Asha's story, and what I want you to listen for in this section um, and. If you wouldn't mind, again, you can um, put your comments in the chat. Um, Thinking about the barriers that immigrant survivors might face when seeking help. Um, So uh, during, I'm sorry. Um, So in Asha's case, the physical and sexual violence continued to get worse as the months passed and Asha did not become pregnant. Uh, Eventually, at her mother-in-law's insistence, they took her to the doctor, and at the doctor's office, Asha's mother-in-law interpreted for her, Um, so she wasn't able to disclose the abuse or ask for help. Then, after an incident where her husband twisted her arm behind her back, slammed her into the wall, and threatened to kill her, um, Asha ran out of the house into a neighbor, fearing for her life. She wasn't able to communicate with them, but they knew that she was in trouble and called 911. The responding officer did not speak Urdu um, and they asked Asha's father-in-law to interpret. Um, There weren't any visible marks on Asha, so her husband was not arrested, but the officer asked if there was somewhere else that Asha could stay for the evening. Um, The family made arrangements for her to stay with another family from the mosque. And while she was there, she was able to make contact with her cousin in California Um, The cousin jumped online, found the local domestic violence program, and called the hotline. She worked with the advocate to make arrangements for Asha to go into shelter, and in shelter, Asha couldn't communicate with the staff or with the other shelter guests. She'd never been in a shelter before. Um, and she actually hadn't even uh, heard of, um, she wasn't even familiar with the concept of a shelter, or domestic violence shelter. She'd never heard of something like that in Pakistan. Um, It was extremely difficult, but she was eventually able to tell her story through a telephonic interpreter, and the advocates helped her to file a PFA, which was ultimately granted. She wasn't authorized to work in the United States and didn't qualify for public benefits, um her husband and his family immediately began spreading rumors about um around their community her community in Pakistan saying that she left her husband for another man which brought a lot of shame um to Asha and to her family there and um so she became depressed but she couldn't access individual or group counseling services because although she had begun taking english she um Her English was still pretty limited, Um, so I see in the chat someone is bringing up um, language as one of the main barriers. And absolutely, Um, in Asha's case, you know there were at least two points, right, where there could have been some potential intervention, right? There was the doctor's office, and there was the police intervention, and at both in both of those uh, instances. The the folks that Asha was interacting with didn't really do um, what they should have in terms of language access. They used really inappropriate interpreters um, using the mother-in-law and um, her father-in-law. And that's unfortunately something that we see really frequently. Um, uh, You know, using inappropriate interpreters like using children. I remember a case from, well, I won't say the town, but um, where the police came out to a domestic violence call, and um, it wasn't an emergency anymore. The emergency had ended. The abuser was no longer at the scene, um, but they used a seven the seven year old child to interpret for mom, and were basically asking her asking the child to say, "Do you want daddy arrested?" Um, so you can see how that is. It, it's just it's not appropriate, and it's really dangerous. Um, and you're not gonna get the information, you know, that you need um, if you're not using a professional um, or high quality interpreter. Um, so definitely language was a huge, um, a huge barrier. Um, let's see what else we said, um, cult, a cultural barrier. Yeah, so in this case, um, he immediately started spreading all of those rumors, um, which, um, It was really shameful for for Asha and for her family because he was basically saying that she ran off with this other man and um, he was making threats also to divorce her, um, which was a really big deal for Asha. Um, Let's see, couldn't access any help because of her immigration status and wasn't able to get the help that she needed, yeah. Um, So in Asha's case, she wasn't even really aware of um, the availability of free domestic violence Services. Um, and this is something that we see a lot where folks just don't know that you're maybe they don't know that your program exists. Um, or even if they do know the program exists, they might think it's not for them. Um, might be worried that if they come to you, you're going to ask about immigration status, or maybe they heard of another person who had uh, a bad experience and wasn't able to um, have an interpreter or whatever. So people have a lot of reasons for why they might not be reaching out for our services. Um, we talked about isolation already in the last um, part of the story, so I won't go there again, but um, it really was true in Asha's case. Actually, the, that neighbor that she ran to, I didn't know who she was. Um, didn't even know that the neighbor um, had, had married someone and that they were living there because she really was so isolated. She never left the house. And, um, Another big one is distrust in the police. Um, And this is something that we see really across the board. Um, I remember doing a survey about this um, a number of years ago where we asked folks, and really it was true regardless of their immigration status. It was the same if somebody was undocumented or if they were a legal permanent resident. Everybody reported having hesitancy, waiting to call the police or not calling the police at all because they were afraid of immigration enforcement. Um, and that's, that's still true today. Um, on top of that, folks have, often may have a distrust in the police for a lot of good reasons. Um, they may have had negative experiences with police or with law enforcement in their home country Um, where maybe domestic violence or sexual assault was not taken um, very seriously um, or where there might be a lot of um, corruption. I'm remembering a case of um, a woman from Colombia who, again, this was really severe domestic violence. I think she was very pregnant, uh, maybe in like her third trimester pregnancy also. Um, And it was really severe violence involving a knife. um, And she called the police and they came out um they took her partner outside and he came back in you know a few minutes later and was basically laughing at her um because he was um a wealthy paramilitary and he paid off the police and so he came back in and was like you think you can call the police on me like i can buy them um and so she learned you know that the police were not really a resource for her. Um, I'm thinking of another case um, of a woman, I think she was from Mozambique, who her husband was part of the ruling party there and in that region. And um, again, this was really severe violence and she would go to the um, police station to try to make a report and they would physically bring her back to her husband um, and tell him that she had gone there to make a report. And then, you know, she was physically abused even more because she had tried to make this report. So people have these come having these real experiences and it's not, um, it's understandable why they may not view the police as a resource. And you couple that with, um, you know, negative experiences with police here in the United States that immigrant communities and communities of color have. um, And also the either real or perceived collaboration between local law enforcement and federal immigration authorities um, and people are just feeling are really fearful um, and may um, benefit from having some support from us as advocates in in work in making a report to the police um, we talked already a little bit about the financial concerns no work authorization, didn't have access to public benefits, didn't have savings, didn't have access to her her husband's money. Um, And we know that um, financial concerns are a big reason that folks often um, stay in abusive relationships. And that's true for immigrant survivors who may also not have access to um, even the limited safety net that exists for um, US citizen survivors. Another uh, barrier that didn't come up, I don't think specifically in Asha's story, but um, we often find that immigrant survivors are—they're are, worried about immigration enforcement and getting into deportation proceedings for them for themselves. They're also really worried about other people. Um, you know, maybe there are other family members in the or other folks that they live with who are undocumented. Um, they also might be worried about the immigration consequences for their abusive partner, um, right? We know that um, survivors for a ton of different reasons often don't want their abusive partner to get into trouble. Um, and for someone who whose partner is an immigrant, they might not only, um, you know, maybe they could end up going to jail, they could also end up in deportation proceedings. They could end up being removed to another country um, and maybe it's a, real, a dangerous situation in their home country or you know they're not gonna be able to provide any financial support to the survivor and their children. Um, so it's definitely a, real, a very real concern um, when survivors are worried about the immigration consequences for the abuser um, or other folks. Um, and then this came up in Asha's story where she was just not aware of the shelter services she didn't know that the shelter existed um, and she didn't know um, how to access those services so that's on us you know to make sure that we are doing um, a lot of community engagement really targeted outreach to make sure that folks know about our services um, and how to access them Um, So really quickly, before we jump into all of the um, immigration options, I just want to talk through some tips and best practices for working with immigrant survivors. Um, Sarah, I'm sorry if I could just interrupt. I need to launch the first of the CLE poll boxes now. Attorneys, please respond to this. You will have two minutes to do so and please continue. Thank you. Sure. So the first one is one we all know about right we all know that we need to be using a qualified interpreter a professional interpreter um this is really there's just no getting around it i know that it can be expensive i know that it can be time consuming but if we want um to do a good job and provide our services in the way that i know we all do we need to use um professional qualified interpreters um sometimes the survivor might um you know this has happened to me where a survivor brings someone with them and they want that person to interpret um this could be because you know they're used to being told that they need to provide their own interpreter um or because maybe you know they're there to talk about something um traumatic they want that person there also as a support to them um and i totally understand that but um We have to be really careful in those situations because we don't know, um, you know, what the level of, you know, what that person's level is of the target languages, their English fluency, Um, even if they are 100% bilingual, interpretation is really a skill and an art. It's not, it's not just about being bilingual. Um, So, we need to make sure that the person has the the skills and the knowledge to be able to interpret. And then secondly, we don't know, maybe today this person is someone who's super supportive and somebody that the survivor wants there, but we don't know how that relationship might change in the future. Um, And, you know, you know, maybe in two weeks they have a falling out. And now you've had this person interpret for, you know, to fill out a PFA petition, and they've got all these intimate details that they can then share with um, the abuser, or with other folks, um, and it's just really a safety concern. So, um, even if the survivor says that they they want somebody to interpret for them, I, I often tell them, you know, it's actually our organization's policy um, that I pro- that I provide a professional interpreter, um, and it's just there's like I said, there's just really no way around it. Um, we also want to always assess for literacy and provide um, written materials in the native language whenever possible. Um, We want to make sure we are asking survivors about their immigration status, but also letting them know that that information is going to be kept confidential, that you're not going to share it with anyone. And I find it really helpful to explain why you're asking. Um, right? So a lot of advocates are sometimes hesitant to ask about immigration status because they don't want the survivor to feel like you're gonna judge them or that you're not going to provide your services, that you know, it's contingent on them having legal status. Um, and so it's just, you can just be upfront and you can say, none of those things are gonna happen. I'm not gonna share this information. It's not gonna affect our work. I'm asking because I wanna be able to connect you with a free immigration legal service provider if you have immigration concerns. Um, and then if, if somebody doesn't want to share that information, you can always provide um, information about a, a, a good quality immigration legal service provider to them. And you can say, you know, in case you need it, or if you know, you've got friends or family members who can use it. And then the survivor can reach out on their own. Um, but we don't want to n- cut someone off from really uh, es- essential services because we don't want to ask an uncomfortable question or something that you know, you can address those concerns, I think. Um, We want to assist survivors in reporting to law enforcement and provide accompaniment whenever possible. This is really important um, for all those reasons that we talked about earlier. There's so much fear around um, interacting with the police, and for good reason. Um, So it's, even if you don't speak the person's language, just having someone there that's on their side, that's keeping an eye on what's happening can be really, really helpful. Um, And, and, you know, accompanying someone to court. We know that um, immigration, I mean, we know that civil and criminal proceedings are really confusing, it's really scary, someone's going through crisis, Um, and so, that's true for, for US citizen um, survivors and for immigrant survivors, they may not have that even that level of familiarity with um, the courts. So it's, it's really, really important. Um, we also wanna tailor our safety planning to um, the unique concerns of immigrant survivors. Um, some of the ways that we talked about earlier, like talking through what's going on with documents, identity documents, um, doing some basic education around um, the laws in the United States. I find this particularly true for um, like concepts like marital rape, where folks, you know, laws are different in different countries, right? So folks may not recognize that as something that's against the law here in the US. Same with um, statutory rape. Depending on where folks are coming from, that may not be something that they are familiar with, and even domestic violence. You know, folks might come from a country where there aren't domestic violence laws on the books, or um, domestic violence is defined as assaulting anyone who is not your wife. Um, so, it's really important to to make sure that everyone understands, um, or the survivor that you're working with understands what is actually against the law in the United States, so they can make an informed decision about if they want to report, um, make a report to the police or not. Um, Making warm referrals, super important. Um, You know, if you want to refer someone to um, a clothing bank, for example, you know, maybe you might just hand them a phone number uh, and, you know, send them on their way and and that's going to work out just fine. But if somebody is limited English proficient, they're going to call that number and they're going to have to go through like 12, prompts in English, or they're going to show up somewhere and be asked to provide a social security number, um, it's, you know, our our referrals just aren't going to be as helpful as we want them to be. So you might need to take, you know, the extra time, sit down, make the call with someone um, to make sure that they're really going to get the service that you are are wanting to refer them to. Go- the constraints when setting goal setting is really more. Um, I'm thinking of in shelter contexts um, because a lot of um, you know our domestic violence shelters are emergency 30 day shelters, and it can be really difficult for all the reasons that we talked about. Um, when someone doesn't have work authorization, they don't have access to public benefits. Um, can be really hard to, to get everything figured out and become really self-sufficient in 30 days. So, I mean, it's hard for, I think for everybody. Um, so just keeping that in mind and, and really thinking about the constraints that an individual um, might have when you're doing that that planning. And then finally, um, we wanna always refer survivors to, um, to ISP or to another qualified immigration legal service provider. Um, And we are fortunate here in Pennsylvania to have a lot of wonderful or several wonderful providers that really know um, these forms of relief that we're about to talk through and really take a a survivor focused approach. Um, So it's really important. There are a lot of notarios and other folks out there who um, claim to provide immigration legal services and the consequences are so dire is really dangerous to um, for someone to go to, to some, a non-attorney or non-DOJ accredited rep um, and file immigration applications. So make sure you're always making a referral to a, um, a qualified legal service provider. Um, so if there are no questions on, on those things, we're gonna um, transition into talking about um, some of the forms of relief Fortunately, um, I know it was seems like a lot of bad news for Asha, but in her case, there was actually a happy ending um, and from the shelter she got referred to ISP and we filed um, for her and actually right now she, um, she actually reached out to me just It's actually been a couple of years now, but is living in California. She actually became a US citizen. She remarried and has children. She's doing great. Um, So there can be some really happy endings to these stories. And Whitney is gonna talk us through how to get to that ending. All
1: right. (laughs) Sorry if I sound a little froggy, I um, am getting over a cold. So I'm hoping that my voice holds through the rest of this presentation. Um, Thank you, Sarah. As you guys all all see, we are really fortunate at PERC to have some just incredible advocates who really understand the dynamics and situations that our immigrant survivors face. And Sarah is just an awesome resource if you have any questions in that regard. Um, So as somebody pointed out in the chat, Asha did qualify for a VAWA self-petition. and that is because she was married to a US citizen. So that was a qualifying relationship that made her eligible for VAWA. Um, she, If she had been married to a lawful permanent resident, she also would have qualified for VAWA. If she had been unmarried, uh, married to an undocumented person, that's something we can address later, but there's another option that would have been available to her. Um, so the most important things that we look at when we're looking at filing a VAWA self-petition is establishing that the immigrant survivor entered into the marriage in good faith. So basically that means that they really wanted to build a life with this person and had every intent of doing so, but, uh, and that they didn't come here strictly for the purpose of gaining some kind of immigration benefit. Um, And again, because her abuser was a US citizen, um, that is what qualified her for VAWA Um, Again, that could have been that would have been the case if um, her abuser had been a lawful permanent resident as well. There are other qualifying relationships. Um, If the parent is a U.S. citizen, if um, parent is a U.S. citizen, um, that child may be eligible for um, uh, for VAWA as well. Um, But again, just to focus back on um, Asha's story, some of the other things we have to show is that they uh, did share a residence so that they live together. I imagine, Sarah, that would probably be a little bit challenging in Asha's case because I don't imagine that she was getting a lot of mail at that address and probably had nothing in her name that actually had the address there. Um, So I'm sure you have to get creative in establishing that. Um, And then we have to prove that there was battery and or extreme cruelty, um, which, you know, it could be, through a declaration, so a really detailed declaration from the immigrant survivor. Um, if there are photos or medical records, things along those lines are all really helpful in, in supporting that argument. Um, and then finally, we had to prove good moral character for the three years prior to filing the petition. Um, so, you know, addressing any criminal history that the person may or may not have um, anywhere in the world, so not just here in the U.S., um, or if they have no criminal issues, obviously like showing that they are somewhat active in their community or they're doing good things, um, even in the context of a shelter or with their children. Those are good, um, good examples that we can use to show good moral character. Really what I think we're seeing is that they just have to say in their declaration that they're a person of good moral character. And for some reason that seems to be sufficient most of the time. Um, I wish it was that easy on other things, but um, for good moral character, for whatever reason, that tends to be um, enough. Um, so again, just to get a little more into the details here. And again, Our our intent isn't necessarily for you guys to walk away ready to file one of these, one of these petitions, but we really just want you to be able to identify when relief might be available for someone that you're, that you're meeting with. Um, So again, you have to prove that qualifying relationship to a U.S. citizen or a lawful permanent resident. So, um, we we Usually, I think we've had some pretty good luck most of the time in getting a copy of, you know, the abuser's birth certificate or um, some other documentation that shows that they're a U.S. citizen. I think we use voting records, too, sometimes. Um, But there are some odd situations that come up. So if if the lawful permanent resident abuser was deported, for example, that doesn't necessarily mean that relief is off the table. Um, You just have to make sure that you're filing that VAWA petition within two years of the deportation um, and that you have to show that the deportation was related to the abuse. So if, you know, they violated um, a protection order and wound up in removal proceedings, um, showing that they were removed on the basis of violate because they violated that protection order and were not eligible for other um, relief and Thus, or removed from the United States. That's enough to establish that. If, if the person's no longer married to the abuser, you can still file, um, within two years again. So two years seems to is kind of that magic number here. Um, so within two years of the date that the divorce became final. So if it ends in divorce, again, you have to show that the divorce is related to the abuse. Um, and then you can also still file within two years if the abuser passes away. Um, so those are two or two additional things to kind of keep in mind because life happens and not always as straightforward as we would like. Cases aren't always as straightforward as we'd like them to be. Um, again, so uh, establishing good faith marriage is, it's not about proving that they loved each other. You don't have to prove that you have to prove that their intent was to build a life together. And so in Asha's case, it was an arranged marriage. Like if you were having to prove that she had like these deep romantic feelings, probably we wouldn't have been able to establish that, but we can establish through, um, through, you know, communications with her family members and other, um, just cultural like a cultural understanding of an arranged marriage things along those lines that the intent of this marriage was not for her to come to the U.S. and get legal status but instead was to build a life together with this man um so again good faith marriage is it's something that we have to prove a lot for a lot of these forms of relief and it really is about the intent of the marriage being to establish life together and not just to get immigration status, so. So, um, battery and extreme cruelty, Um, you don't have to show that there's a risk of future abuse. It's enough to prove that there was abuse in the past. There's no requirement that that the immigrant survivor leave the abuser. So we do have cases where we're working with somebody who is still living with their abuser um, or has even reconciled with the abuser. Um, And I think we've had, I think we also have a case had a case somewhat recently where it got to the naturalization stage and we because she was naturalizing based on her marriage to a US citizen, but had filed um, maybe, maybe it was a bettered spouse waiver well anyways it doesn't matter but <laughs> but we we basically asked that they explain like how like okay so he was abusive so you got this status based on him being um, cruel to you and treating you very poorly or in an abusive manner, like how, like you're still with him and you're qualifying for naturalization based on this marriage. So what happened? And essentially they were able to just say, like, we went to marriage counseling. He did a lot of work and our marriage is, um, stronger now than it was before. And that was enough to, um, allow it to move forward. Um, so again, just some examples of what we would look for to prove extreme, um, to prove battery or extreme cruelty: police reports, complaints, um, PFAs, um, medical records, um, records that they're seeing a therapist. Um, getting a great letter from a psychiatrist or psychologist regarding, um, you know, their findings during their therapy sessions is always really helpful photos of injuries, photos of damage to property, um, letters, text messages, emails that the abuser sent, the criminal docket sheet showing that the abuser was prosecuted in some way for the abuse, um, affidavits from family members, friends, neighbors, letters from therapists, social workers, or shelter staff, just attesting to the abuse that they um, know that the person suffered. Um, and I think one thing that I, um, that I am learning that I need to keep in mind, because we're always learning and growing, um, is that I, I have a client right now that his, his evidence is pretty weak as far as abuse goes. But I think that if I go back to the basics of looking at um, the power and control wheel and really talk through the power and control wheel with him, I suspect that there's more there than is apparent just on the surface. So sometimes we do have to do a little bit more digging to really um, find the, that evidence that we need. Um, and sometimes it does mean just like a really detailed declaration again to establish that abuse occurred um so there's no minimum amount of time that we have to show that the immigrant survivor and their abuser lived together we just have to show that they shared a residence and that could be inside the U.S. it could be outside the U.S. um but the person must currently reside in the United States um so again going back to you know Asha's case and Sarah feel free to chime in if you think of you know, ways that you established the joint residency requirement, Um, you know, these are examples of things that are very concrete that prove joint residence, right? So, you know, tax returns, mortgage payments, leases, even mail, like these are very like concrete documents that would have somebody's name and address on them. Um, I don't know what Asha had um, to establish the joint residency, um, but again, maybe Sarah can chime in if she thinks of if she thinks of some of the examples that she actually used.
0: Yeah, well, I think just in general, um, you know, you, you have to provide um, the standard is is maybe different than it would be in like at a criminal court. So you have to provide the, the best evidence that's available to you, and these applications do go to. A particular um, service center um, where supposedly the adjudicators have received training on domestic violence. So, if you aren't able to provide, you know, same for abuse or for good faith marriage, if you're not able to provide that really great primary evidence of, you know, police reports or um, joint taxes and leases and all those kinds of things, what you can do is explain, you know, why you don't have those things. Um, and provide what you do have. So, you know, we submit anything. Like if, you know, mm-hmm. they could have junk mail, like catalog mail that you don't even want, but it's coming to you at that address. You know, we're submitting that. Um, submitting you. affidavits from um, neighbors or from friends and family, um, you know, school, your kids' school records that show, you know, both parents um, listed there. Um, obviously it's great evidence if, if there are biological children that the couple shares, um, that's good evidence for, for a good faith marriage. Um, but yeah, sometimes we just have to get really creative and explain what we don't have. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and often we're able, able to do that with a, a little bit of work.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think too, it's really important to keep in mind that often the lack of evidence is further proof of the abuse. Right. And so again, We're supposedly submitting these applications to a service center that is trained on the dynamics of domestic violence. Um, So we hope that they understand that when we explain like this person was so isolated that their name is not on any documentation. Like we don't have any evidence other than their statement or maybe a letter um that that should be sufficient because again the standard is 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 lower it's best evidence available not primary um it's not definitely not something you would you would um be required to meet in um criminal court or even in civil cases um so moving forward, again, finally, the good moral character requirement. So again, we're focused on the three years prior to submitting the application. What is good moral character? Um, it's according to USCIS, it's measured by the standard of of the community, but does not necessarily require the highest degree of moral excellence. Um, there are some there are some ways in which someone can be prevented from proving that good moral character and those examples are given here on this slide um although i'd really i i'm definitely like a very wonky like into statutory language kind of person and so i'd love to get into a really deep conversation about what a habitual drunkard is um um, and again like at the end of the day good moral character is discretionary. So it all depends on what you're able to submit and what you can show. Um, I think we recently had an RFE in our office where they basically said, well, you forgot to say in your declaration that you're a person of good moral character. We updated the declaration, added a sentence that said, I am a good person of good moral character. And that was enough. (laughs) So, I mean, obviously we don't want to just bank on that always being sufficient, but um, just keeping in mind that- good moral character is a very amorphous thing. Um, so again, just some examples of things that you can submit to support good moral character, you know, letters from family and friends, employers, if their person is working, awards or certificates that the person's received. So like if they've um, maybe they're taking ESL classes and they've completed, you know, a couple of courses, if they've gotten a cert- if they've gotten certificates or things along those lines. Um, letter from the school, from children's school saying this person's parent is really involved and is really great. Um, Things like that are all going to go to support that good moral character requirement. So then after an application for VAWA is filed, um, this is sort of the process. These are sort of the steps that, the things that happen after filing. So initially you get a prima facie determination, which basically says like, we've reviewed the application, looks like you qualify. Um, Then you got the work permit and social security card. And once they've processed, um, so the VAWA self petition, there are two, two steps. The first is to establish that the person qualifies for VAWA protections. So again, all of the things that we've talked about previous to this, Um, then the second part of it is the adjustment of status application where they are asking to become a lawful permanent resident on the basis of being, of qualifying as a VAWA self-petitioner. So uh, the end result that we hope for always is to get somebody a green card, um, and not to get too, too much into the weeds, but technically, yes, you could just file for VAWA the first part of that. It doesn't really do a lot. It provides some level of protection, but in the end, if you don't qualify to adjust status for whatever reason, you know, you just have that limited protection and that's it. There's no opportunity for getting a green card. Um, and then obviously in the end, we all hope that they, that the person is able to naturalize and become a US citizen. Questions on that, I we really like, love to hear from you guys if you have questions this is all um a lot of information we know um and you can put it in the chat or you can just shout it out or we can just move forward um so let's say and I need to move there we go let's say that instead that so let's say that instead of not filing um anything for asha that instead um her husband had filed all the appropriate petition paperwork and she had become a a lawful permanent resident but became a conditional resident because their marriage was so was so new when they filed that petition um So just to respond to the question that popped up in the chat, um, if the abuser is undocumented, really the best option is a U visa. And I, best option, I use that in very loose terms. (laughs) Um, So if, if So if Asha's husband had actually completed the petition and she had been able to adjust status and become a lawful permanent resident because they had been married for less than two years by the time that petition was granted, we're just going to assume those facts here, um, she would have gotten a conditional green card. And a conditional green card is only valid for two years, whereas um, a... Um, you know, normal, I guess, green card is valid for 10 and you have to actually ask that these conditions be removed. And essentially the goal of this is to prevent marriage fraud. It's another mechanism through which that they can, ass- USCIS can assure that in fact, this person did get married to this other person in order to build a life together and not just to get an immigration benefit. Um, so uh you have to approve so generally the requirement is that you apply to remove the conditions on this green card jointly so you file with your u.s citizen husband lpr husband or wife um, to have those conditions removed basically you say look we're still married everything's going great give me my 10-year green card but we all know that that's not always how things work, and sometimes uh, the marriage falls apart or doesn't exist two years later um, for a number of reasons. Um, so one of those reasons could be that the petitioner passes away, um, and basically you are still eligible to remove those conditions. You just have to show that you know the petitioner passed away. Um, you can get a waiver of that joint filing requirement. um, If you're able to show that um, you entered the marriage in good faith, had every intention of building a life together, but that it ended in divorce or an annulment, you know, just things didn't work out basically. Um, And then the, the last two, um, are a little different. So you can also apply for a waiver of that joint filing requirement by showing that the immigrant survivor was subject to battery or extreme cruelty. So again, we're still looking, we are looking at things like we were talking about with the VAWA self-petition. So you still wanna show that, you know, they suffered battery extreme cruelty. and that the marriage was entered into in good faith, um, but they don't wanna be basically like shackled to their abuser in order to um, have these conditions removed. Um, and then finally, extreme hardship. So if you can show that um, the, foreign, the well, foreign national or immigrant survivor would suffer extreme hardship if they were removed, um, That's uh, another way in which you can get the waiver. So, um, this the way the removal of conditions applications right now are taking crazy amounts of time to approve or to even get to adjudication. so oftentimes the, green, the conditional green card expires while that removal of conditions application is pending. And so they would need to go, like make an appointment with USCIS, go to one of their supports, um, either the service uh, field office or one of their um, application support centers to get a stamp in their passport that extends that status. And that does work, that does also extend their work authorization as well. Um, but basically it's the only way that they're going to have proof that they are still in status is by having that extension stamp. Um, if the applicant's been a lawful permanent resident for three years while the application to remove conditions is pending, they also may be eligible to apply for naturalization. I know for several of my cases, this is the route that we've elected to go my clients have decided that they want to naturalize and, you know, they could continue just waiting for the adjudication of the removal of conditions application, or we can kind of force the government to adjudicate it by filing the naturalization application. So essentially what ends up happening is the naturalization application gets processed. They get to the interview and during that interview, the officer will have to adjudicate the removal of conditions application first, and then after that will adjudicate the naturalization application. Um, so this is just kind of our way of forcing the government to do their job. Um, but obviously, we want to make sure that this person is actually at a point where they can naturalize. So we want to take into consideration all those things that we, we look at when we um, when we look at Assisting somebody with naturalization, can they pass the, the English and civics exam, um, and are they, in general, eligible for naturalization? So, you still want to go through that analysis as well. All right, so I'm going to turn this back over to Sarah and give my voice a rest.
0: <laughs> okay, so um, you know, VAWA self petitions and the um, battered spouse waiver are really great options for. A lot of folks, right? But it only helps people who have that qualifying relationship, um, and so there's a lot of people that are left out from that, right? We have folks who are, um, you know, sticking with the DV scenario. You know, maybe folks who are not married, or they are married, but the abuser is not a legal permanent resident or U.S. citizen. You know, VAWA is is not going to help them. Um, but one thing that might help them is the U visa, which probably a lot of you are already familiar with. Um, But I'm gonna quickly go through some of the uh, eligibility requirements and then I'll go through each one um, in a little bit more detail. But basically the U visa is for um, victims of crime um, where the criminal activity happened here in the United States or it violated the laws of the United States. The person also has to demonstrate that they suffered substantial physical or mental harm as a a result of the abuse. And then the really key thing about the U visa is that the the survivor has to have been helpful, is being helpful, or is likely to be helpful in the investigation and or prosecution of the crime. So when you think about VAWA and battered spouse petitions, you can think qualifying relationship. and abuser status. When you're thinking about the U visa, the thing you wanna remember is helpfulness or cooperation. Um, and then of course, the, the person also has to be admissible to the United States, but we'll, we'll talk through each one of those. Um, so you can go to the next slide. Um, so as I said, they have to be a victim of uh, a qualifying criminal activity. Um, and they could either be a direct victim, which is what you're thinking of, you know, the actual, the the survivor themselves is the victim of domestic violence or um, the most common types of indirect victims that we see are often in cases of um, child sexual assault, you know, where maybe it's a U.S. citizen child, um, but mom and dad are undocumented. And if they meet all of the other requirements, so they can show harm, they can show cooperation, um, they may qualify themselves as an indirect victim. Um, that's also the case for um, um, murder and manslaughter um, or when the direct victim themselves is incapacitated or incompetent um, and so I guess there might be folks on the call who do just general um, like crime crime victim work not just limited to DVSA so um, the U visa is a great tool to know about um, for for many crime victims um, there are, I think it used to be 28, although there was some revision and I'm not sure exactly how many there are at the moment, Um, but there are certain crimes that qualify. Um, So the ones that we work with most often, of course, are domestic violence, sexual assault, rape. Um, You may also be encountering folks, um, indirect victims of murder or manslaughter. Um, Of course, uh, we also see stalking Um, and you may also be working with folks who are victims of felonious assault. if it's like a stranger assault or something like that. Um, But it's important to keep in mind that those are categories of crime, right? So we know in Pennsylvania, we don't have a crime of domestic violence. Um, But so the the crimes that we often file U visas for based on domestic violence are like simple assault, harassment, um, subject of physical contact, um, terroristic threats, Um, you might even do a U based on um, like property damage stuff when it's happening in between intimate partners. Um, So that's important to keep in mind. And so you can make an argument that a crime is similar to one of these and fits within the category of these crimes. Um, So we can go ahead. Um, As I said, the really key thing that you wanna be looking for, for a U visa is helpfulness Um, and, Helpfulness can look a lot of different ways. There's not one set thing that says yes. This, this is cooperation. Um, but of course, uh, you know USCIS doesn't just take the survivor's word for it that they say, "Oh yeah, I cooperated in that in that case." Um, they do require a form, which is the I-19 um, Supplement B, and it has to be signed by um, the head of the law enforcement agency or the head of the agency. Um, that was investigating or prosecuting the crime. So most often, that is, you know, a chief of police, the district attorney. Um, they could also designate someone who has supervisory r- responsibility to be the designated certifier. Um, there are other agencies that can sign. Um, judges, like in PFA cases, can sign. Um, Child protective service agencies can sign. Um, Department of Labor. Um, so there are a lot of different sort of certif- potential certifiers. The ones that we see most frequently are um, police and um, prosecutors. So as I said, it's, it's really, um, there's not one set thing that is cooperation. It's really to the dis- at the discretion of the certifier. Um, and the certifier is really just verifying two things. One, that the person was a victim and that they have been cooperating or being co- are, are cooperating or are likely to cooperate in the investigation and/ or prosecution. So there is no requirement um, for example that an arrest be made there's no requirement of a conviction. So it could look like Asha's case right where she the, the police were called they came out they interviewed her um, they didn't find enough evidence um, to make an arrest or issue any charges and so they just, You know, had the family make arrangements, and um, she she stayed somewhere else for that night. Um, So that's a you know a report only case. She could still qualify for a U visa if she's able to get the certification from that police department. Um, Certification could also look like, you know, Asha called the police. They came out. They took a report. Um, took photos of her injuries, it, her husband is arrested, you know, maybe she testifies at a preliminary hearing, um, maybe it goes to a jury trial and she has to testify there. That is cooperation. It's really that the survivor cooperated to the extent that is requested of them. Um, so they can't refuse um, to to cooperate. Um, and so it's really helpful to to explain to certifiers what exactly they are certifying. Right? Sometimes they have the impression that they are um, like the USCIS adjudicator and they're making the decision whether or not this person is gonna get legal status. That's not the case. Um, you saw on that first slide, all of those components, all of those elements that someone has to show um, in order to qualify for the U visa. So it's not just the helpfulness piece and and that is the only piece that the certifier is, is verifying. Um, It's not so it's not that they're sponsoring this person. They don't have to verify that this person is a a good person. Um, They do not have to run a criminal background check on this person and decide if they think this person should get a visa or not. Um, They are just verifying if this person was a victim and if they were um, if they did cooperate. Um, They don't have any um, responsibility to like keep tabs on certifications that they signed and and verify in the future that yes, this person kept cooperating, they don't have to um, follow cases and then withdraw their certification if the person stops cooperating, for example, they can do that, um, but they are not required to do so. Um, there is a really helpful, um, guide that is put out by DHS that really breaks down all of this and addresses a lot of concerns that certifiers might have. Um, and you all, although you might not be filing U visas, you could be um, involved uh, potentially in this process. I know in at PERC, we've often um, partnered with uh, like PFA attorneys at MidPen, for example, um, because maybe the the judge in the case is very familiar with the, the PFA attorney, they have a great like relationship and they might not have any idea who we are, right? So we've often, um, we prepare the certification and then we ask the, a PFA attorney, for example, to approach the judge and, and make the request um, or a DVSA agency that has like a longstanding relationship with a particular police department it might be beneficial to the survivor for them to approach um, the police department to request the certification. Um, so it's helpful to know the the context of what you're, you know, what you're involved in and what you're asking. Um, but yeah, it, it most likely I think in a case where it's, it's a, a request based on a PFA and we have seen, we've done a number of those cases now in the past, it was more um, kind of questionable. We didn't know if, those cases were gonna be successful. Um, but I think we actually just got our first conditional approval of a case based on um, a certification based on cooperation in a PFA. And I don't know if there are other immigration legal service or providers on the uh, call, feel free to um, comment in the chat if you have had success in those cases too. Um, but it is relatively new um, for us. Well, it was new five years ago and now we're just getting those decisions five years later. Um, So that's the U-Visa certification process. Um, You can go to the next slide. Oh, thank you. Um, you, As I mentioned, so you have to prove that you're a victim of one of those qualifying crimes. The crime happened here in the United States. Um, You also have to show that uh, you suffered substantial physical and or mental harm um, as a result of that crime. Um, and one of the ways that we often show that is with a letter from a service provider, like from a, a domestic violence or a sexual assault um, counseling agency, um, that can really go a long way. And it's another way that you might be involved in one of these types of cases, um, because while some crimes you would think it's obvious, you know, in a case of rape, it's obvious that this person suffered substantial harm. I mean, I think we've gotten a request for an RFE, a request for evidence, um, asking us to prove that um, the substantial harm and immigration, uh, USCIS really likes to see that someone sought services, I guess, in their mind, you know, if you really suffered, you would have sought services. And so um, that can be a really helpful piece of, of these applications in proving the substantial harm. And um, and then lastly, of course, you have to prove that the person has, is, ad, is admissible to the United States. Um, there's listed here a bunch of the more common grounds of inadmissibility. Um, you know, if someone entered the United States without inspection, um, they've been in the United States without um, authorization, they maybe have some criminal issues, um, they might have a prior deportation, or they committed some kind of fraud or misrepresentation to get an immigration benefit, or maybe they made a false, you know, they applied for a driver's license using a, a Puerto Rican um birth certificate, for example, and they made a false claim to U.S. citizenship. Um, Those things can all um, be barriers to establishing admissibility. But fortunately, with the U visa, there is a very, very generous waiver, and almost anything can be waived. The only things that cannot be waived are Things that relate to national security, I think like if you were a Nazi or if you were involved in like extrajudicial killings, um, those things cannot be waived. But the majority of the issues that our clients come to us with can be waived. Um, and it's really a balancing act. It, I think the standard is in the public or national interest or something like that. But um, it's really just a balancing act of, you know, yes, they may have these negative um factors from the past but they have all of these positive equities you know they've got u.s citizen children that they were the primary um caretaker for you know maybe they are active in their um their uh faith community maybe they are active in their community or they you know volunteer at their kids school or whatever um and it's not it sounds like a a a big um you know a difficult standard but it's really it's not especially when it's um when the issues are minimal, like it's just, they entered without inspection, um, most times you're gonna be able to to demonstrate that on the whole, this person is a good person. What I do is I try to make it like the person that you would want to be your neighbor, right? Um, or, um, you know, I'll even submit, you know, I'll put pictures of the mom with her kids or, you know, pictures that the kids have drawn or letters from the kids. Um, I have no idea if it's actually um, effective, but I think if I were an adjudicator looking at it, I would think, yeah, I wanna keep this, this family together. Um, so you do have to prove the um, admissibility or um, or submit the waiver application and, and qualify for the waiver. Um, what's great about the U visa, you can go on to the next slide. I don't actually know if it's here in the slides, but what's great about the U visa is that you can also, um, you can also, Include um, family members as derivatives. So, if um, if it's an adult victim, they could apply for unmarried children that are under that are under age twenty one. Um, they can also apply for non offending spouses. If it's a child victim, um, they could apply for si- siblings up to age eighteen. They can apply for parents. Um, So you can include others in your application. And really um, that's one of the goals of the U visa is, um, you know, that it is humanitarian in nature and it is for family unity. And then of course the other, you know, um, reason that the U visa was created and perhaps the primary reason is that it's really meant to be a tool for law enforcement. because of all those things that we talked about early in the presentation, um, where immigrants might be hesitant to cooperate with the police, um, this is meant to really be an incentive and a tool that law enforcement can use in order to um, keep immigrant victims in cooperating in the criminal justice system so that folks are not able to victimize immigrant communities you know, with impunity and without um, any consequence. Um, so the We talked about processing times for um, for the 751. I don't know if we talked about it for VAWA, but um, for the U visa, if you know about the U visa, you know that the processing times are out of control. Um, I think when I started doing this work was like more than 10 years ago now, but I remember getting a U visa approval in four and a half months. And it was like an actual U visa. It wasn't just getting put on a wait list, which is right now, Unimaginable. Um, right now, um, they are processing applications that they received um, four and a half to five years ago. Um, and w- there are only 10,000 U visas available each year. And that's by statute, there's a cap. Um, and so there's something like 270,000 pending applications. So right now, they're looking at cases that, that, that they received five years ago. If you're applying today, knowing that backlog that they have of 270,000, you're looking at much, even much longer. Not all of them are gonna be approved, but you're looking at maybe 10 to 12 years. So um, it's, it's ridiculous, it's insane. Um, and currently, or up until now, there's been really no relief. So while your application is pending, you you don't have deferred action, which is essentially protection from deportation. You don't have um, work authorization. So you're just struggling and trying to make it until you finally hit a decision like five years down the road. Um, we just on um, Monday actually got this like insanely wonderful, exciting news. Um, DHS announced that they are going to um, begin processing applications for um, people who have pending new visas and um, potentially offering um, deferred action and work authorization. So this will hopefully really decrease the amount of time that people are waiting between filing and getting work authorization, which is what most people want and need is to be able to work legally and have a social security card so that they can um be independent from domestic violence relationships to support themselves and support their children. That's what they wanna do. So um, this, like I said, this just came out Monday. It's very, very new. We have no, we don't know yet um, what the timeline will be um, but it's very exciting. And honestly, something I never thought would happen. So it's, it's great news. Um, so I think I covered everything about the U visa. Um, again, the main thing to remember is cooperation. Yeah. I'm sorry, if I could just launch the second of the CLE poll boxes. Um, Attorneys, you must respond to this second poll question. You'll have two minutes to do so. And Sarah, please feel free to continue. Sorry to interrupt. No, no worries. Um, It's really important. Like Whitney said, we don't expect you to be able to, after this training, you know, prepare and file a U-Visa petition. But it's great to know that that it exists and what the general requirements are. Because if you're interacting with the survivor early on when when he or she is making the decision, if they want to cooperate, if they want to make a report, if they want to cooperate, of course it's gonna be up to them, right? We're not going to say you have to do this or that, but you can explain this so that they know that they may have this opportunity Um, and, you know, they can really make an informed decision. And this is totally off topic, but I'm just remembering that I didn't, when I was talking about derivatives, I mentioned children who are under 21 and unmarried, and that's children who are here in the U.S., undocumented or um, children in the home country. I don't know why that just popped in my mind. Um, But now I'll I'll turn it over to Whitney so that she can talk to us about the T visa, which is kind of like um, the U visa's cousin visa, I'd say.
1: Yeah, it's the U visa's nicer cousin. (laughs) Um, So T visas are specific specifically for victims of severe of severe form of human of a severe form of human trafficking, excuse me. Um, So we have to show that the person, the immigrant survivor is in the United States or any of these other um, regions. And we have to show that they are or that they're at a port of entry because of the trafficking. Um, The immigrant survivor has to comply with reasonable requests from law enforcement to um, assist with the investigation. Um, This is a little bit, I think, a little looser than the U-Visa requirement. they, if the victim is under 18 or is unable to cooperate because of physical or psychological trauma, there is an exception for that as far as help the um, helpfulness requirement goes. Um, and then again, have to show that the victim suffered extreme hardship um, involving unusual and severe harm if the victim were removed from the United States. Um, and then that the person is again, admissible to the United States or eligible for a waiver. So under federal law, there are like two definitions of a severe form of trafficking. So for sex trafficking, it's when someone recruits, harbors, transports, provides, solicits, patronizes, or obtains a person for the purpose of a commercial sex act. Where the commercial sex act is induced by force, fraud, or coercion, or the person being induced to perform such act is under eighteen years of age, and then labor trafficking uh, when a person recruits, harbors, transports, provides, or obtains a person for labor or services through the use of force, fraud, or coercion of the purpose of, of, for the purpose of uh, involuntary servitude, peonage, debt bondage, or slavery. So the victim may support or may submit a law enforcement, um, certification. So this is a different form than, um, what's submitted for the U visa and it's a may, not a, not a shall requirement. Um, if they're unable to obtain the certification, they can submit some sort of secondary evidence of helpfulness. So some sort of, you know, declaration saying all the ways that they were helpful. Um, or again, if they f- fit into one of those categories they're under the age of 18, or they're unable to assist because of uh, physical or psychological trauma, um, that would need to be documented as well. And we've got like three minutes, so I'm gonna kind of blow through this. Um, so for um, the presence in the US, like the focus is really on the reason the person came to the US originally. So if the victim um escaped trafficking a trafficking situation prior to making a report to law enforcement they must explain why the human trafficking situation has made them unable to leave the united states um like i said really going to blow through this sorry guys (laughs) um so extreme hardship so if they were like to be sent back to their home country we have to show that it was it would be more than economic harm so um you know, if I go back to Guatemala, like I'm not going to be able to find a job. It has to be something more substantial than that. Same thing with social harm. It has to be more than, you know, because I was trafficked to the United States um, and was subject to um, sexual slavery that um, I'm now unsuitable for marriage or for employment, I'll be shunned. Again, it has to be be more than that. So you want to look at, things this considerations like age and the situation including medical or mental health needs of the um of the victim and whether or not they'll have access to services in their home country um whether the government's going to whether their home government is going to provide them with any protections from being trafficked again um and any likelihood that they'd be victimized even in some other way in their home country Um, if the victim is gonna be um, punished because of being trafficked. Um, so by either by the government, by the traffickers or even based on social practices um, and whether the native country, their home country is dangerous because of war or civil violence. So these are just some additional considerations to look at um, in order to establish that extreme hardship standard. Um, So the benefits, um, four years of non-immigrant status, four years of employment authorization. Um, There is some limited access to public benefits. Um, It's somewhat similar to what refugees are eligible for. There is, this is a pathway to lawful permanent residence. So you're eligible after three years. to apply for permanent residence. If the investigation is concluded earlier than that three year period, you can apply er earlier. And again, you have this benefit of being able to petition or include derivative family members who are living in the US and abroad um, to gain, they get the same sort of benefits that you get um, in filing this application. The processing times are not backlogged like for the U visa. So, you know, if there's any, argument to be made that a case could be a T and not just a U I think we we probably filed both in all honesty but we try to include try to apply for the T whenever we can because it's so much faster um, than waiting for the U all right so like I said we really 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 blew through that last section so fast but if you guys have any questions please feel free to ask um Oh, Sarah's just put into the chat that she's um, just forgot that there's ultimately at the end of a U visa process the the U visa petitioner will get four years of that non-immigrant status so it's U non-immigrant status obviously instead of T non-immigrant status After, As part of that, you get to work, Um, obviously you get to remain in the US, and then um, after three years in the U non-immigrant status, you're eligible to apply for a green card. So even though it's a terribly long process, there are some pretty significant benefits to it. So
0: anyone, if you have any questions or comments, please unmute yourselves or type them in the chat box quickly.
1: Yeah. And this is our contact information. So, you know, feel free to reach out to us. Um, We are more than happy to talk with you guys about, you know, what options might be available. You know, we can help you with technical assistance and things like that. If you've got questions for clients, Um, we have obviously Sarah and a few others on our team who are real experts with, you know, working with survivor with immigrant survivors specifically. So, Um, If you ever have questions, you can always reach out to us um, in that regard as well. Okay, well, I'm not seeing anything in the chat box, and I'm not seeing anyone unmute themselves. So um, Whitney and Sarah, thank you so much for being here with us and for sharing this information. And everyone
0: have a great rest of the day.
1: Thank you.